Would you open your Bibles up this morning to Genesis chapter 3? <clears throat> we'll be reading from verses, verse 14 to verse 19. Let's continue to worship God as we hear the word and hear it preached. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and following. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we take up Genesis chapter 3, these sobering words this morning, as they are words that result from the fall of man, sin, a world that we live in, that we experience, that we know intimately. We also take up these words with great joy this morning, because in them there is hope. In them there is gospel hope. Psalm 89 praises you. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with all your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. And O Father, this is our hope this morning that you are the great warrior. That you will overcome sin and death and Satan. And we exalt in you this morning that you have done this through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed in the gospel. That through his suffering, through his crucifixion, through his death, you have overcome these realities. That you have brought a sure and final victory to us. And we rejoice in Christ today. And Father, as we press into this text, as we press into the gospel this morning, we ask, we plead that you would give us eyes to see, that we might gain greater insight, that we might know better your gospel. And not only that we would know better, but that we would love better Christ Jesus. Give us eyes of amazement this morning at Jesus and who he is and what he has done. Give us eyes of wonder 
Father, you need to do this for us today. Work in our hearts through your spirit as the word is preached. We need it. And we pray this in your son's glorious name. Amen. The middle part of the Apostles' Creed reads like this. We read it last week and I'll, I'll read it again. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. And this morning we're taking up part two of the Apostles' Creed. We're spending three weeks in the Creed. Last week we began with the Creed by learning who the Creed proclaims, the identity of our Savior, the incarnate Son of God. And we saw that the the creed proclaims we have a second Adam, a new humanity has come, a new root. And that being united to this new root, we can have new life. In Adam we die, in Christ we live. And the second part of the creed sums up neatly in one sentence the the kernel of Jesus' labor in the gospel. His labor consisted chiefly in his suffering, in his crucifixion, and his death. And from the outset, the creed will not let us be mistaken about the identity and the work of our Savior. The creed is not ambiguous about the core of our Lord's ministry. We worship, we believe, we're even united to, wed to the Son of God who suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried. Our Savior is the one of whom Isaiah speaks of so pointedly and beautifully In Isaiah 52 and 53, just let these words sink in. Isaiah tells us of the Savior. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. We just need to let these words that Isaiah proclaims in chapter 52 and chapter 53 that the the creed tells us this morning, settle into our minds. Suffering, affliction, sorrow, grief, rejection, crucifixion, death. At the heart of Jesus' ministry and labors are the most inglorious, 
shameful aspects of human existence in the fallen world. And what does the creed do with these shameful things? What does Christian preaching do with these inglorious aspects? Well, the creed heralds these events of shame. And Christian preaching, as Paul tells us, makes it an aim to announce Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We are a people who glory in the cross of Christ. We count these realities of suffering, crucifixion, death, burial as good news for our souls, life for us. And our aim this morning as we think upon these words, the words that the creed brings to us, suffering, crucifixion, death, is to drill into these words, drill into their logic in the gospel. Why is it that Jesus' ministry is described with these words? And even more than this, why do we offer the sufferings of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the, the death of Christ as good news? How can what looks like human failure, human frailty, be heralded as good news that we hold out to the world? As we did last Sunday, we can find answers to these questions as we look into the authoritative story from beginning to end. We have to understand the creed in light of this story. And so if we want to understand the death of Christ, the logic of these words, we must understand the genesis of death itself. And this will help us set our trajectory. So going to the book of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So Genesis teaches us fundamental theology. God is the giver of life. Man is by nature a a contingent creature. We exist by the will of another being, and that being is God. And not only does God give life to man, but God is also the sustainer of life. God provides all that Adam needs to live in creation. We can just go down two verses in the Genesis account. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God gives life to man. He sustains the life of man. And God also holds out the promise of greater life to the man. Genesis tells us the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We cannot miss this theme of life just woven throughout Genesis chapter 2. This is God's design for his creatures, that they would have life and that they might have life abundantly. So as we look at Genesis chapter 2, this theme of life, we have to ask, Where does death come from? We find it in Genesis chapter 2 as well. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Genesis is teaching us fundamental theology again. Death we have to assert against all contemporary thinking in our world, against evolutionary theology, is not natural to God's good creation. 
Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Rather, death is the result of man's disobedience. Or as Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. And so when we leave Genesis chapter 2 and we usher into Genesis chapter 3, the, the tempter draws near to Eve. And he begins to tempt her. He begins to lie. And what does he say in his lies to her? You will not surely die. And the tempter's desires to spoil God's creation. The tempter's desires to turn his creatures into rebels, to subvert God's aims and desires. And even more clearly in the Genesis account, the tempter's aim is to come to Adam and Eve and to murder them. And who is this tempter? Well, Jesus reveals in John 8, 44, the, the work and the identity, the character of this tempter. Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So as we work through Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, instead of rejecting the lies of the serpent, take the words of the tempter to heart. You will not surely die. And through their disobedience to the law of God, to the word of God, they usher into God's good creation death, the due reward for their sin. And as a, a result of their sin, death hangs over all created reality. It touches and taints every aspect of our lives. And the Genesis account teaches that death is just not an event that awaits us in life, but it is a, a state that we live in due to sin. We see it in our work as we deal with futility and failure and impotence. We see death in our families as we watch people age, grow older, and eventually die. We see it in ourselves, in our own bodies. We see it in our relationships. We see it in our own exile as we live far from God, living east of Eden. The sentence of sin hangs over us all, death. And at the same time, sin brings another result. Though God truly remains the sovereign king over all, though he is seated firmly upon his throne, the result of sin is rebellion. And there is a real scriptural sense that humanity and sin comes under the power and sway of the tempter. When Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate, they, just not, they did not make a one-off moral choice but they actually seeded themselves into his kingdom of darkness. Adam gave the tempter a foothold and the tempter ceased. We can think of passages in the New Testament like 1 John 5.19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Or 2 Corinthians 4.4 where Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Or 1 Peter 5, 8, where he says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So as we consider Genesis, it begins by giving us answers in regards to life and death. God gives life to man. God sustains the life of man. He even holds out the promise of greater life to man. There's a problem a murderer enters the garden and man sides with the serpent believing his lies. You will not surely die. And through their sin, death enters. 
So humanity, we have real problems. There's death, there's sin, and there's this serpent. So we have to ask as we look at the Genesis account, what will God do with these realities? What is God going to do with this sentence of death that hangs over all created reality? What will he do with sin? What is he going to do with this murderous serpent that has entered the garden? And we can praise God this morning for the gospel of grace. Because the gospel declares that God will not give up on his good designs, his good intentions. Death will not have the final say. The world will not lie forever in the power of this evil one. And God's people will not live forever under the power and sway of sin. So we read this morning as we began the the long section of God's curse. And in this curse we find good news. Genesis 3.15, God curses the serpent. And this is what God is going to do in light of death and sin and the serpent. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Just think of the good news this was for Adam and Eve. Before they left the garden, they received from their creator, their God, their maker, words of hope to cling to. And though they will face and experience death in its fullness, though the sin and serpent run rampant around them, though they will decay and die, they have hope that an offspring will come. Through the curse, life will arrive. And the simple verse, Genesis 3.15, sets a trajectory of hope, this thread of hope lining the rest of the Scriptures. Genesis 3.15 gives us an outline for the nature and the structure of the gospel as it works itself out through both Testaments. There's going to be a coming offspring. And this offspring is going to wage war against the serpent. And even more than this, this coming offspring will get a sure and final victory over the serpent and all that has been brought about because of the serpent, including sin and death. And this victory will come through a double bruising. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Victory over the serpent will come through the suffering of the offspring. So when we turn this morning to the pages of the New Testament, We must read and think with this trajectory, this outline, this logic in mind. Genesis 3.15 is setting us in a direction, and we need to see how it's worked out in the new. When we come to the pages of the New Testament, we should be looking for the identity of the offspring. Who is this offspring? When we come to the New Testament, we should be looking for this God-ordained enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. We should be looking, we should be looking to see this defeat of the serpent. How will this take place? So the apostolic testimony is very quick to point out to us the identity of the offspring. If you turn this morning to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the first page of his gospel, the first page of the New Testament, reveals to us the identity of the offspring. Matthew begins his gospel this way. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We can admit this morning that reading genealogies are not often the most exciting thing we can 
do. And when we pick up the Gospel of Matthew, these first 17 or so verses, we're often tempted to skip over them and get to the more exciting parts of Jesus' life, his words, his works. However, if we have Genesis 3.15 in mind, when we come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and this genealogy, this genealogy should carry great weight for us. Because it is through this genealogy, Matthew wants us to make some connections. He wants us to begin connecting dots of who Jesus is. And he shows us that through his genealogy, there's this clear line running through the Scriptures. A line stretching from Genesis 3.15 where this, this promise of a, a coming offspring through Abraham who was promised an offspring, through David who was promised an offspring, to Jesus who is the promised offspring. And Matthew is signaling to us the, the significance of the coming of Christ. He is telling us that this Jesus in this gospel story is about this long-awaited offspring. He's come. He's here. Notice him. And to further fill out and cement this connection of who Jesus is for us, Matthew writes later in chapter 1, verse 21, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Matthew's presenting precious news to us this morning. He presents to us our champion. This one, this Jesus, he is the offspring and he's going to go before us. He's going to wage the war and fight the battle that we could not wage in and of ourselves. Matthew presents, here's your David that's going to go forth and slay the Goliath. So we found the promised offspring. It's the Lord Jesus. If we found the promised offspring, we should be looking for God-ordained enmity between these two lines. We should be on alert for conflict, for warfare. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Genesis 3.15 helps us make sense of the gospel stories that we read. The verse gives us insight into the plot line that's revolving around Jesus as he goes along in these stories. The entirety of Jesus' life was warfare against the serpent and his offspring. From Jesus' birth, there's warfare. To his life and ministry, even to his death, it's all conceived as warfare. This pushes back against other readings of Scripture. We cannot simply understand the Lord Jesus as a good moral teacher, though he did teach, and we love his teaching. We cannot simply understand Jesus as a healer, though he did heal. We cannot simply understand him as a prophet, though Jesus did prophesy. We have to make room in our theology, also in our thinking, for Jesus as a warrior, as a champion. He comes to battle. And at every turn in the gospel story, Jesus comes and he advances against the serpent. He works as a, as a wise general, and he's, he's pushing back against his foe. And he's wisely and systematically cutting off the strength of his foe. And we can read the gospel stories in this light. And when we do, they make great sense. Just think of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. The Lord Jesus advances against the serpent in the wilderness. And Mark tells us, he, he reveals what's going on in this temptation. Chapter 1, verse 12 of his gospel, he says, The spirit 
immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And if we're reading with Genesis 3.15 in mind, this begins to make sense. It's not an accident that Jesus and Satan meet up in the wilderness. There's this divine initiative and purpose in their meeting. The Spirit drove him out. There's this divine plan. So we see in this wilderness fight that there's an advancement of the kingdom of God. Jesus goes out there to battle against his foe. And there in the wilderness, Jesus in his extreme hunger after 40 days of fasting, in his weakness that fasting brings, and in his solitude, there he fends off the murderous serpent. And he fends off not this, the serpent, not with swords or spears or, or violence, but he fends off the serpent. He defeats the serpent by obedience to his father. He does what Adam could not do. And he boldly announces his victory. He says, be gone, Satan. Or we can move through the Gospels and come to the story of when Jesus enters into Gentile territory. We can recall Jesus' healing of the demoniac. It's such a dramatic story. And here Jesus restores the life of a poor man, possessed by a legion of unclean spirits, a man living among the tombs, Uh, It's a picture of living hell for this man. Yet in this story of mercy and grace, there's also a battle in it. The battle lines are drawn up between two opposing sides. The serpent musters up a legion of his troops to fend off the advancing Jesus, and they outnumber Jesus. They are a legion, some 6,000 unclean spirits to Jesus being one. But in battle, they cannot stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his presence, they bow down and they cry out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And by Jesus' sovereign and authoritative word, this host is defeated. We have to read the Gospels in light of Genesis 3.15. And what we see in the pages of the Gospels and all these healings, And all the casting out of demons that Jesus does in his forgiveness of sins is that the Lord Jesus has come to do battle. He has come and he has bound the strong man. And because he has bound the strong man, Satan, he is plundering all of his goods. So Jesus is systematically overcoming and defeating the works of the serpent, just like Genesis 3.15 promised. So the identity of the offspring is clear. It's Jesus. And we can see the God-ordained enmity between the two lines. It just spills out of the gospel stories when we read them in the wilderness account and Jesus' healings and interactions with unclean spirits and demons and even the religious authorities. But we have to ask, how will the Lord Jesus gain a sure and decisive victory over this serpent? And we can ask the questions that we started off this morning with as well. Why death? Why crucifixion? Why suffering? How can we hold out as hope, as salvation, what looks like human frailty and weakness? Why can we celebrate and have joy in these shameful realities? There's one question, there's one answer to all these questions. Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
And when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, the apostolic proclamation makes clear this double bruising. It is through suffering, crucifixion, and death that Jesus will gain a decisive victory over the serpent and all his works and all his fruits. And the bruising of the head of the serpent comes through the bruising of the heel of the offspring. And it's because of this that we can celebrate, we can lift high, we can have joy in the cross of Christ because it is in his bruising that Christ has won a sure and certain salvation for his people. But we have to press further. We have to press deeper. We can ask, how does Jesus' suffering, how does his crucifixion, how does his death gain a decisive victory over the serpent and all his fruits and works? We can ask an even deeper theological question. In what sense does Jesus' death have anything to do with Satan? How does the bruising of the heel of the offspring bruise the head of the serpent? To answer this question, these questions, we can turn to the pages of 1 John. And John's very keen, he's very interested in answering these questions, how Jesus defeats the serpent. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 reads, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of of the devil. We can see John picking up here Genesis 3.15. He points out to us the hope of Genesis 3.15, and he says it's come to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come to destroy the works of the devil. He's the bruiser of the head. And we can interrogate John this morning. How does the Son of God destroy the works of the devil? How has he bruised the head of the serpent and John gives us an answer in chapter 3, verse 5. He says in very parallel language, you know that he, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So this morning we can reason that sin is the chief work of Satan. It's what he enticed our first parents in the garden to commit. It's how he leads all those who are under his power even say that defying God is Satan's delight and leading others to do is his pleasure. And Jesus has come, as John says, to take away this chief work of Satan in the people of God. To free a people from the tyranny of sin, to absolve a people from the guilt of sin, to cleanse a people from the defilement of sin. John says, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. We can press on John even further this morning. But how does the Lord Jesus take away sins, which defeats the devil? We can go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Here's the heart of John's logic, the heart of this argument. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And so we can reason this morning, Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. He has freed a people from the reign of sin. He has absolved our sins. How? By offering up himself on the altar of God, this Godward sacrifice. And it is in his suffering, his crucifixion and death, that Jesus has definitively put away sin for the people of God. Jesus has turned away the wrath of God. 
And the Father has looked upon the sufferings and death of Christ and is satisfied. Justice has met its demands. And it's here that we see our salvation. It's here we see the fullness of Genesis 3.15, the, the bruising of the head of the serpent. See, the devil has been destroyed. His works have been destroyed. Because Jesus has taken away sin, and he's taken away sin through his Godward sacrifice by being a propitiation for our sins. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So here we see the the reparation of Adam's sin and ours. Adam, through sin, brought death. But Christ, through his death, has brought life. And we see here the destruction of Satan and his works. Christ has offered himself up as a propitiation for our sins, and a death blow has been afflicted to the head of the serpent, his works. So we can see the whole story come full circle. Life to death, from death to life. And this is why the creed asserts, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to hell. And the creed faithfully proclaims our Savior to us our Savior who lived a life of suffering and conflict, our Savior who was oppressed and afflicted, our Savior who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs, our Savior who bore the crown of thorns, our Savior whose hands will forever be scarred, who's celebrated in the book of Revelation as the the slain lamb. So we worship, we believe, we are united to the Son of God who who suffered, who was crucified, died, and was buried. And through these events, he has gained a decisive victory for his people. Our sins have been atoned for, and in this, Satan and his works are defeated. So with this story in mind, with the, with the creed in mind this morning, what are we to do with this all? What are we to do with the story of Christ Jesus? What do we do with the words of the creed? What are we to do with Christ's suffering, his death, his crucifixion? We must come again in faith and worship to this Savior. And Calvin exhorts us this morning what we must do with the Savior. He writes, Since then, there is in us nothing but spiritual infection and leprosy, and that we are corrupt in our iniquities. And we can even add to Calvin this morning, reflecting on the Genesis story, since in sin we're under the power of the evil one and are sieged daily by his powerful attacks and his dark kingdom. What shall we do? Calvin asks, what remedy is there for us? Shall we go seek help from the angels in paradise? They can do nothing for us. No, we must come to our Lord Jesus Christ, who was willing to be disfigured from the top of his head, even to the sole of his feet, and was a mass of wounds, flogged with many stripes and crowned with thorns, nailed and fastened to the cross, pierced through the sides. This is how we are healed. Here is our true medicine. 
with which we must be content and with which we must embrace wholeheartedly, knowing that otherwise we can never have inward peace, but always be tormented and tortured to the extreme, unless Jesus Christ himself comforts us and appeases God's wrath against us. So this morning, brothers and sisters, where shall we find release from our sins? Well, the gospel bids us go to the crucified Savior. Where shall we find the defeat of Satan and his works and his fruits and his kingdom? Well, we must go to that crucified Savior. And where can we find peace for our guilty souls? Where can we find hope? It's in the crucified Savior. John tells us of the Lord Jesus. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. This is our salvation. Let's pray. Father, this morning we exalt in the Lord Jesus Christ. We glory in him. We hope in the one who suffered, one who incurred so many insults, one who was bruised and wounded. We hope in the one who was crucified. We hope in the one who died because in him we have victory. In him we are absolved of our sin. In him Satan has been defeated. In him we have hope and life. No, Father, would you lead us this morning? Lead us this morning to see his glory and his brilliance. Lead us this morning to take our fill of him and from no other. Broaden our hearts and teach us to love Christ all the more. We pray this this morning in the the name of the offspring. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. I've heard a thousand stories of what they Yeah.